0: Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Christina Velez from Colombia. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor. Christina, tell me about your childhood. What was it like growing up in a country in a time of conflict?
1: Well, it was definitely an interesting childhood, if you could say so. I was telling my story to the other fellows about how it was, and I thought many of the things that had happened to me were absolutely normal. But when you see it from a different perspective, basically what happened was that our lives started to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. My parents were both oriented towards um, agriculture. My father had a business in which he bought old machinery, refurbished them, and sold them again, and those machines were basically... um, in small towns all around the country, so he used to travel a lot, and my mother was a veterinarian. So both their lives were completely oriented towards agricultural life, and I used to travel a lot with them. But then our lives started to get, you know, smaller, so we stopped going to certain places and then to other places and then to other places, and then by the... Early 90s, we were living in Bogota and we were completely circumscribed to the city and not even the entire city, only places of the city. Because when the bombing started and and the Cartel de Medellin under Pablo Escobar started putting bombs in the city, um, even certain public places were already out of the raiders or so our lives got even smaller. I I even— tell this story because it's absolutely true. There's this book by an American author called Wade Davis and he wrote about his travels around um, the Colombian Orinoco region and the Amazonian region. And that's how students of my generation traveled, by reading Wade Davis, because we couldn't go to those places. How many people were killed in the conflict? Wow, Um, so I was just seeing this morning the front page of of one of the big national newspapers uh, that was published the day the peace process with the FARC ended. And it was around, it was more than 240,000, but there's more than seven million victims in the country, seven million people that have declared themselves as victims either directly or indirectly because of the armed conflict and are seeking some sort of reparation.
0: So in 2016, an agreement was reached between the Colombian government of President Santos and the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, to end this conflict. However, when we look today, the peace process seems to be in jeopardy. What is going wrong and why?
1: Okay, so the first caveat, I wrote it, yes, I would vote yes another time. And yes in the yes, referendum. Yes in the referendum. Because to, in support of the, the peace The process. referendum that lost, actually, no one, the referendum. But I would have voted yes. And from the city government, that was in the city government at that moment, we explicitly supported the process and we campaigned in favor of the process. So having said that, one of the things that happened was that this peace process was only with one of the factions of the of the armed conflict, what happened was the ELN did not negotiate with the national government. So the negotiation was only with one of the factions of the, the armed FARC. conflict, the FARC. Yeah. And the dissident groups of the FARC, because not everyone in the FARC agreed with the process, as not everyone in the Colombian society agreed with the process either, are now joining the ELN groups. And they have lots of support from other um, illegal armed forces, mainly those around the drug dealing business with proven links uh, to the cartel de Sinaloa and the big cartels in Mexico. So I think it was great to actually have signed something with the FARC. We have right now ex-members of FARC in Congress. Um, We have—part of the agreement is already going on. And actually, I heard someone say the other day from a high-ranking UN officer saying that— Santos had a great discourse about peace but he wasn't very quick in implementing the process and Duque has been good at implementing the agreement but has had um hasn't had a good discourse about peace so we're basically living in this limbo in which nobody's actually happy with what is happening and there were a lot of expectations about the peace process people thought it was going to be it was going to solve all our problems and now taking this scenario out of the public discussion, we still we still have to deal with corruption, With we still have to deal with um, inequality, we still have to deal with a lot of the growing pains of a country that has grown a lot in the past decades.
0: But is one of the main issues about justice—how do the victims of the conflict get justice? Is that one of the reasons that the peace process seems to be in difficulty?
1: Yes, in at the beginning I thought that the special jurisdiction for peace that was part of the agreement was going to be quicker in the decisions they made because they everyone is waiting for big decisions to come. Um and I think this idea of of impunity is what most people don't like about the peace process. But it's an essential part of the peace process, too, and it's basically part of um, a, a nationwide decision of putting this back and moving forward. Yesterday, I saw the most amazing video I've seen in a while and it was taken by this woman who was a victim of one of the paramilitary groups because this is another actor of the armed conflict. She had just received a video from her aggressor asking for forgiveness. And she's a very proud woman. She's part of the women's movement. She's always perfectly dressed and perfectly coiffed and everything. She mm. she looks perfect all the time. And she made this video on her pajamas because she had just received the forgiveness. Well, she, the, the, the request, the for, request forgiveness. for forgiveness. And she said, I forgive you. I understand what happened to you. I can see what happened to you. This, of course, does not justify what you did to me, but I'm completely moved with your action. And I only hope you start healing like I did. And that is exactly what we need. We need 7 million of those. That went viral. And we need now 7 million of those. That's the problem. How to get 7 million of those reactions. And how's the economy doing in Colombia? So, you know, this is one of the funny things about Colombia. Um, and this is something that people used to say in the 90s and even in the early part of the century. The country's not doing well, but the economy is doing well. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that has always happened. Um, we are We haven't had the crazy growth rates Argentina has had in certain moments of its history, but we haven't had the the contraction moments it has also had. We've always been the little engine that could. So if you see, if you track um, economic growth in the region in the long run, Colombia is always growing at a slow but steady pace. Uh, So we're going to be one of the few countries in the region that is going to be growing at a decent rate this year, 3.6 is what basically is expected. We still have a very big unemployment problem. Uh, the rate is around 10, and it, we haven't been able to tackle it down. It's It's been hard um, to actually r- identify why it's still stagnant. It, of course, has to do a lot with the migration crisis we've, we've lived. But and the
0: migration uh, crisis from Venezuela. from Venezuela.
1: And I would expect for this rate to start dropping in the next few years because there has been some reactivation in, in certain key sectors uh, for employment, especially infrastructure sectors. And how about the illicit economy, the wow. drug trade? So there's Colombia has a very informal economy. It's not illicit, but it's also very informal. So you have to like divide the three categories, the formal economy, the informal economy, and then the illicit economy. I think it has always been a big driver in certain regions, especially in regions where there is little statehood, if you could say so.
0: Or little presence of government. Little presence of yeah. government.
1: Little presence of government, basically. Um, but it's it's an economy that doesn't have large trickle-down effects. Um, so basically, it moves a lot of cash, but most of the cash stays in the intermediaries, like the big chunks chunk of the cash stays in the people that take the drugs from Colombia to the final markets, be it the US or Europe. And those people are not Colombian anymore. So we're basically right now we're in the, in the first part of the trade, which is the production of the coca leaves. and the So is production going up? Um, or is it now coming down? there's no way to actually measure it because there's been a discussion about the hectares of coca leaves in in the country and they went up in the in the past years but now they're starting to go down and there's a big national discussion about how to tackle this if we should have um a uh, like spray it from the air or if they should do it manually but of course everything has lots of Issues behind it. If you spread it from the air, you're going to have lots of environmental consequences and health issues. If you do it manually, you're exposing soldiers and volunteers to anti-personal mines. And there has to be an alternative livelihood for the yeah. for the farmers. Yeah, and there's there isn't a single product that is as profitable as the coca leaf. Basically, that's the big discussion. So we could have, and. We've had beautiful experience about people growing all sorts of different products. Um, but it's difficult to have, you know, like a big product that will replace Coca as and be as, prof- as profitable as Coca has
0: been. Now, you've spent many years working on social integration in Bogota. What are the sort of key issues you've been dealing with?
1: So Bogota is a um, wonderful city, and it's sort of like a ray of the country. So, And it's also a city in which the participation of the community is a key aspect of any political decision. And you would have, if you're working from the government, as I was, um, you would have to deal every day or negotiate every day with the group of... Um, Rome people in the country, uh, for the group of, um, of the organizations of the women's movements, the organization of the LGBT movement, um, the Afro-Colombian descendants, the people who don't consider themselves as Afro-Colombian but rather as black, uh, the people who... Um, have certain interests in animal rights or environmental rights. The 13 different uh, recognized indigenous communities in the in the city. So it's basically a very complex and very diverse city. And any social program has to have these perspectives in in it. Not only as part of as part of the decoration, as many people do because they just use um, diversity as a decoration in the decisions they make. But you actually have to have programs that adapt to everyone's needs, or you won't be able to do anything in, in a city like Bogota. So what I've learned from this experience is that you have to be a great negotiator. Even if you consider yourself a technocrat, the, probably the best skill you need is to be a great negotiator with, in order to have programs that actually help and actually deliver what people need and what people want. And do you feel after all those years you feel your programs had an impact? Yes, and I have we have numbers to back it up and of course this is um, these programs, are not something that we did in two years, three years, four years, but it's something that has been happening in the city since 1998. And I worked with a mayor that used to be mayor when I was graduating from school and when I started college, and I admired him a lot when I was young, and um, and for the first time I got to ride in a bus that was not filled with fleas and that something that happened. And <laughs> um, for the first time, I was living in a city that was talking about bicycles in 1998, in a city that was putting the, the pedestrian first. And those were really revolutionary concepts at the time. Those are obvious now, um, even though there's a lot of work to do, but those were really revolutionary. So um, having worked with with, with Mayor Peñalosa it was sort of a way of like continuing these— trends and these changes that the city has lived. So basically, what are the numbers that back this up? Last year, Bogota had a, a decrease of 1.2 points in its multidimensional poverty measurement, while the rest of the country was either stagnant or growing. And this is basically a, well, something that happened because of what we were doing on the ground.
0: And a new mayor has been elected in Bogota, Claudia Lopez, who's also a
1: World Fellow. Yes, Claudia was elected late October. Um, she's the first woman mayor in Bogota. And she's... No, she's not the... She's the first elected woman mayor in Bogota because we had a a, a woman mayor about six years ago because the previous mayor was in jail. Not nice, but... Okay, so... <laughs> uh, and she's also... And this is fantastic. She's also openly lesbian, which is like a new step in the city. Um, a lot of people ask me, how did it happen in a very conservative country like Colombia? And looking at them, I was like, oh, I don't think we're a very conservative country. And I definitely don't think Bogota is a very conservative city. And this is actually probably more of a reflection of what is happening in the city. Of course, I have to—Claudia Lopez used to work with Mayor Penales, Mayor and when I was— loving the new buses in the 19, in 1999, ni- 1998. She was part of his team, but she's currently in a different political party, and she's following a different political um, career. So I have to make that clear, because even though I like the idea of having a one mayor, there's of course many things that I'll probably—well, I won't necessarily agree with. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. So what are your plans for the future? What are you going okay. to do next? So my plans for the future. Um, I'm starting a consulting business focused on regional and local governments and organizations that have to deal with le- regional and local governments. And our idea is basically to provide with what we are calling last mile consulting services. So we've I've been a client of many consulting firms, even the most prestigious ones in the world, and they never seem to deliver what a local government needs or what even the national government needs, because they tend to stop at the ideas, they stop at the plan, but they don't actually help in the implementation. And that's something that regional governments need in Colombia and in the region, and the idea is to have a business that is not only working with local governments in Colombia, but also in Central America, in the Andean region, and hopefully in Venezuela very soon. Christina,
0: thank you very much. Thank you, Emma.